I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, where we take a holistic look at music's effect on our everyday lives. As humans, we tend to be fascinated with certain groups of human outliers, like Olympians, the extremely wealthy, and definitely geniuses. I may have shared before on the show how I am a total library nerd and I have an RSS feed where I can see new books that my library has ordered. And there was a title on that feed that caught my eye recently, um, several months ago, called The Hidden Habits of Genius, Beyond Talent, IQ, and Grit, Unlocking the Secrets of Greatness. I immediately ordered the book and thoroughly enjoyed every moment of reading it. It is written by a musician and takes a look at many musical geniuses and geniuses who were musical, including Mozart, Einstein, Galileo, Stravinsky, and Sir Paul McCartney. (laughs) I have the author with me today. Dr. Craig Wright has published seven books on music and cultural history, the most recent being the Hidden Habits of Genius. It was published in October of 2020 and was an Amazon Top 20 book selection for 2020. Craig has multiple degrees from Harvard, including a PhD in musicology. He has taught at Yale for more than 45 years. During that time, he developed a popular course called Exploring the Nature of Genius. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Dr. Wright. Yeah, Mandy, thanks very much for inviting me. Craig, on this show, we talk quite a bit about the social-emotional skills that can be developed through music training, and these same skills are often referred to as 21st century skills or soft skills. You mention in your book that academic grades tend to reward the student who can cram information and regurgitate it on an exam, but these academic exams don't measure those soft skills like creativity, resilience, communication skills. And we can't predict who will become a genius based on any kind of standardized test or grades. In fact, you mentioned an academic joke in your book, the A students get hired to teach in the universities, and the Bs get relatively good jobs working for the Cs. (laughs) But you have identified some common denominators or markers of genius. Tell us what some of those common denominators are that you found. Well, first of all, I should say, Mindy, that I am neither, as you indicated at the beginning there, fabulously wealthy, nor am I a genius. As I'm <laughs> okay. fond of saying, fond of saying, when I told our uh, then four pretty much grown children that I was going to teach a course at Yale on genius and then ultimately began to write a book on genius, they thought that was the funniest darn thing that they'd ever heard. <laughs> you? You're, you a ge- gen- associated with a genius? No, Well, no, no, Einstein's no. kids You're probably said the same thing, right? Right. Well, so, <laughs> so nature of um, parents and children. Children. <laughs> so, so truth in advertising here. I'm no genius, but maybe that makes <laughs> duly it easier, noted <laughs> makes it easier for us to uh, we non geniuses to peek in and see what's going on more clearly from the mm-hmm. outside rather than being inside. Um, you mentioned grades. Um, maybe I'm just uh, finding excuses for for myself there, but it's an interesting phenomenon, and I think a lot about it as with uh, more so p- 
particularly with now seven grandchildren and the importance of grades. And mm-hmm. um, and I'll get to uh, your, your question here about these other enablers of genius. So if it's not things such as high IQ scores and high SAT scores and straight A's and Phi Beta Kappa, which I don't think it is. I think these are probably marginally important. What are these sorts of, uh, of markers or um, uh, enablers that we should be on the lookout for? So that's what we're after, right? Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. Okay, so, so let me jump in here with a few of these. It seems to me the most important thing that uh, people have to have is being passionate. Uh, about something. Um, and sometimes, strangely enough, you know, you, say, uh, you go to these commencement speeches and so-and-so will come out. Um, could be Oprah Winfrey, could be Steve Jobs. They've done it. Uh, other people, uh, Jeff Bezos has done this. The quotes on all these people saying, follow your passion. Well, what 21-year-old knows what their passion is? Yeah, I sure didn't. So, so it, it's a, sometimes it can be a lifetime pursuit, but mm-hmm. whatever, and, and eventually you will find, I think, your passion. But somewhere along the line, you've got to learn stuff. You've got to pay your dues. You've got to dig into a particular area. But at the same time that you are passionate, perhaps, about that, you have to have another almost countervailing inclination, and that is to be very curious. So I think a passion and curiosity go hand in hand here. Mm-hmm. So if we are passionate about learning one subject, that's all to the good. And the sooner you do that, the better. At the same time, I noticed that so many of these brilliant transformative minds, they really were polymaths. They were going not only a thousand miles deep uh, into their area of specialization, but a thousand miles and maybe 2000 miles wide, cross-cutting across disciplines so as to be able to make connections and pull together things that other people aren't capable of seeing. You know, they say, so so, oh, she's such a visionary so far seeing. Well, what they're really doing is just pulling things from disparate areas. and Connecting uh, the dots. Connect, connecting the dots in ways that other people uh, haven't done so. So I think those are, if I were making a list and I have maybe four, you know, I've got a list of 14 things you could do if you want to read through the book. But if I were to cut to the chase here and get down to the essentials, I would say uh, that if I'm going to talk to you maybe about four or five of them today, and the first two on my list would probably be passionate, although don't be impatient here, that may take a long period of time. And then throughout your life, and I don't know whether this is a, a gifted birth or something that you can cultivate, I think it's both, you have to be relentlessly curious. Mm. Well, the thing that I like about those enablers of genius, as you're referring to them, is those can be developed. That's not just something you're either born with or you're not. That's that's something we can kind of identify that marker and say, okay, that's something I want to learn from these geniuses. and, And I want to develop that and cultivate that in my own life. Yeah, I think you can. It also takes, sometimes you have to be lucky in a way and get some good teachers that will help you with that or, sure. or give the right kind of education is just so hugely important. And a lot of that comes with encouragement. I mean, let's take the things that we were all wretched at in school and we thought we were no good. And then eventually your parents start telling you that you're no good at that. And then you come to believe it. And that is math. <laughs> sure. Well, you talk in your book about how so, there there are lucky breaks that attend to genius. And interestingly, wealth is not necessarily one of them. Talk about the relationship of wealth or poverty or middle class to genius. 
You know, I, I'm, I guess I'm not as, I'm proving that I'm not a genius. I should somehow monetize this idea because I really am the first to come up with. Did you know that geniuses almost uh, to a person come from the middle class? Hmm. And you might say, well, and then you start to think about it. Well, why would that be the case? And it's almost immediately obvious. So well, let, but I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to turn this around and, and uh, use a Socratic method here, Mindy. Uh, why do you suppose that genius does not come from the very wealthy or the very poor? Take either one of them. Well, I read the book, so I have the answer, oh. <laughs> but, but I, I, oh, I see darn. why you say it's sort of oh, self-evident. I mean, if you're sit- sitting in the lap of luxury, you have no motivation to change anything. Right. I mean, life is good. Like, why Let's is, just keep things going good. the way they are. Yeah. We like Absolutely. the status quo. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, on the got- other hand, if you are in constant survival mode because of extreme poverty, all you're thinking about is surviving and you don't have right. that extra wherewithal to be yeah. thinking no. about the next best thing and the next brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. So incentive to too much money, no incentive, uh, not enough money, uh, no opportunity. And it's, it's pretty much that simple. But you think about all these people, you think about Shakespeare's, I think his father was a glove maker. Uh, Newton's father was a farmer. Picasso, his, his father was a sort of second grade uh, painter, and, and so on. And so on it goes. Uh, Marie Curie, her father was a high school teacher. Uh, they, they're all very, very middle class. So they're aspirational, uh, but they do. They are given enough in the way of incentives to be able to max out all that they can be. Hmm. Talk about that tension between nature or nurture. How much of genius is the product of the intelligence you've been born with, being born middle class, perhaps, and not wealthy or poor? And how much of it is nurture, hard work, resilience and developing resilience? You know, obviously, as, you, as you've indicated by the way you framed the question, Mindy, it's both. Um, the question that you've asked, though, excuse me, is how, how much is of each? And it's very difficult to um, quantify this, um, as, although psychologists have been have tried to do so. And it depends uh, on the field that you're in. Let's say you happen to be in uh, celestial physics or in math or some highly quantitative uh, discipline. Well, maybe natural gifts are, are 65% of it and then hard work is 35%. And that's the kind of thing that psychologists would, would want to do, but it's, again, very hard to quantify. Uh, so it's it's it goes back and forth. There's sliding uh, scale here. I think uh, it may be discipline dependent. Uh, some things such as uh, a political leadership may be uh, greatly within one's control through hard work and perseverance over a pe- long period of time. My favorite story about this is, and maybe I'll even read it out of the book. Sure. Uh, I have the honor of teaching these kids at Yale, and one of them is Nathan Chen. Nathan Chen happens to be going to Yale, but he's also the number one ranked basically Western Hemisphere figure, male figure skater. And he's already won an Olympic medal and was all set to, to lead the American team there at the next Olympics, but it's been postponed. So needless to say, I start talking with him about nature versus nurture, because it's something that interests us both. With these athletes that have to spin in the air, and it's very interesting. Uh, you talk about natural gifts. How tall would you imagine a figure skater is? Or how tall is, uh, say, gymnast Simone Biles? Not very. Uh, exactly. Five foot. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's right. I think Biles is actually under five foot, and 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 Nathan Chin is, I think, about five foot five. So they they're they, in a strange way they have a natural gift already because when they do those twists, they can pull their arms in, mm-hmm. and, and there's much less flapping out yeah. there. Okay, so I said, and, and Nathan, what, what what do you think? How much is natural gift, and and how much is hard work and uh, nurturing that sort of thing? Okay, so here's what he says. In my opinion, there are genetic factors at work in this domain. Height, bodily proportions, general strength, and the capacity to quickly improve muscle memory. But there are, in addition, a number of genetic factors you can't really see and are more difficult to quantify. All right, that's what we were just talking about that. Mm-hmm. Even, the stuff, even the stuff that's genetic, uh, sort of nature. Among these are the ability to be calm in the face of stress and the ability to internally strategize and course correct during competition. Okay, boy, welcome to our world as performing musicians, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's why I washed out of music, because I didn't have the nerves for it. Mm-hmm. I, I was the world's greatest rehearsal pianist. No kidding. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got there at these competitions, and when they let you come out and test the piano in the hall before, uh-huh. and, and I would just be really great. And then the audience would come out there, the judges would be, and I just collapsed. Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't have the, uh, the kind of natural gifts. And I've seen this with my own children. One blood ice in his veins and nothing would phase him. And he always played the best performance was the actual um, mm-hmm. performance performance, whereas the other uh, one of them would prep like crazy, be so beautifully prepared, and then just, again, collapse. Sure. Okay. So it, uh, there are these natural gifts that, that have to do with performance. Sure. And then Nathan goes on to say, I would say that it's 80% nature. Hmm, that kind of surprises me. So, so such a high factor, but he says it's 80%, in fact, gifts. He says, the gold medal athletes, and he's one of them, mm-hmm. uh, get to an accumulated 100%. In other words, 80% nature and 20% nurture. For those athletes who are naturally at 60% nature, they must maximize the 20% work in order to even think about competing at the top level. So that sort of surprised me because he's so strongly in favor of thinking, well, so much of it is natural gift. He sent me then an email back a couple days later in which he says, his mother says, you know, uh, my mo- I said this to my mother. She thought I was all wrong. She thought it was the reverse. She yeah. thought it was 80% hard work and 20% natural. Oh, interesting. Well, gift. I imagine that is one of those things that is just, it's a very subjective, hard to measure factor and comparison. Yeah. And it probably does depend on the person and the context and the situation and their individual perspective of it. This is a quick break for our sponsor, Rollflex. If you're a regular listener of this show, you've probably heard me talk about my Rollflex Pro. It played a significant role in healing my repetitive use injuries, and I have continued to use it every day for years, both to prevent injuries and because it feels so good. The Rollflex Pro is a foam roller tool with clam-shaped arms that provide leverage to adjust the pressure to whatever you like or can tolerate. I use it mainly on my arms and in the neck shoulder area, but it can be used on any body part because of how it's designed. I highly recommend it. As I mentioned, I've been using the Rollflex daily for years and recently signed up as an affiliate. So you can help support the show at no extra cost to you by purchasing through my link in the show notes. The Rollflex is eligible for reimbursement from flexible spending accounts and HSAs. It's also eligible for medical insurance reimbursement in certain situations. 
solutions. More information is on the Rollflex website. This is Bob Bender, host of the Business Side of Music podcast. Check out our show where we talk about all things related to the music industry. We laugh, we share memories, we discuss what's worked and what didn't work. Our industry is always evolving and can never be locked inside a box. From the rookie fresh off the bus to the well-seasoned professional wondering which new direction to take their career, our show covers all the bases. Join us as we chase this elusive animal we like to call the music industry. Check us out at businesssideofmusic.com. Well, you talk in the book about how not everything about genius is necessarily something that we do want to emulate. You talk about how a lot of geniuses are not so great human beings. (laughs) In fact, you quote uh, reporter Lillian Ross, who said, genius doesn't produce normal men next door who are good family men and look after their wives and children. Genius requires its own way of looking at and living in the world, and it isn't always compatible with conventional ways of living. You mentioned kind of some destructive tendencies and egotism. What are what are some of the other ways that you would characterize some of those not so pleasant common denominators that we tend to see in genius? Well, jerks. Uh, that's have <laughs> uh, been called jerks. Steve, Steve Jobs was frequently called a jerk. And as I uh-huh. was pointing out in Walter Isaacs and uh, a fine biography of Steve Jobs, uh, he's got a whole uh, index entry there. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs, education, birth, family, etc. And then you come to an entry called despicable behavior thereof or something like that. <laughs> I've never seen that in in a, a biography by way of an index entry. Uh, today, is, today it's usually amusing to watch the antics of one Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always getting in trouble. He's tweaking the nose of the SEC in New York for various things that he says that should probably be confidential. Uh, he's weighing in on one tech battle or another. He doesn't treat his, uh, you know, his divorce. He's got five kids how much time does he spend with his kids uh he gives them very strange names he runs around treating his employees uh, not terribly well uh, exposing them apparently to the dangers of covid virus etc etc so um on it goes um it, it presents however an interesting moral question should the genius it's like the old monopoly game should the genius get a get out of jail free card in other words do we just give them a free pass in life what do you yeah think? it's interesting how you address this in your book what what do you think Well, I thought it was really interesting. And this kind of leads into the next topic that I wanted to talk about the relationship of mental illness and disorder to genius. Mm -hmm. And you talk about some of the the geniuses of history and of our current times and how some of them recognize that they had an imbalance. There were these neurological differences. And when they got help to kind of resolve those uh, some of them didn't like the results because they had a, right. there was a cost, a creative cost, and a trade off right. to it. And and, and, and you, and, you you talk in the book too about how we love geniuses once they're dead because they've made life better for the rest of us. But living yeah. with them is a different story, and it's kind of like you know what would you do? I mean, would you get rid of the genius and have somebody who's more compliant and easy to get along with? Or would you have the genius operating at full tilt and and deal with the benefits that come with that? It's an interesting question. 
Yeah, it's, an, it's a very interesting moral dilemma. And it's one faced with those, as mentioned in the book, those dealing with autism, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, and I have this little scene in there where I bring in a friend of mine, a colleague who has a very autistic son in front of 120 you know, undergraduates. And he talks about uh, autism and they've all been studying in labs in Washington where, or many of them, where they try to come up with a cure for autism. And he says, hold on here. We don't want a cure for autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many advantages. These people can do so many unexpected things, particularly with regard to concentration uh, in ways that, that we hadn't thought of. And it's pretty apparent that some folks, such as Isaac Newton, probably had, uh, in one way had either uh, Asperger's or were autistic in, in one sense or another. So it's an interesting moral question. Do we want to really uh, remove the impediment mm-hmm. and, and lose the creativity that may come come with it? Right. Yeah. What's your perspective on if geniuses have a higher prevalence of psychopathology or mental illness than than sort of the general demographic? Yeah, I haven't really done the work on this, um, so I'm not the person to opine firsthand here. Okay. But I can only quote people, and I could run over and get one woman's book whose name escaped me at the moment. She teaches uh, Anderson, Nancy Anderson at University of Iowa, and Kay Jameson, uh, she teaches at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Okay. And they both have come up with statistics that are pretty compelling, that particularly in the arts, the incidence of of insanity is remarkably high and and they're all ranked at, at its highest among poets and, and though maybe that's not surprising and down it goes through the arts those geniuses uh transformative minds that seem less impacted by mental instability or mental disorder are the scientists yeah i thought um, it was interesting in your book you noted that a lot of experts kind of wonder if that's because mathematicians and scientists are dealing with logic and rational mm-hmm. limits, whereas artists are dealing with boundless limits. Yeah, there are no limits. Right. <laughs> Everything's yeah. up for grabs. The, the, the stranger or the more imbalanced or the, the weirder or, or the more different something might be to an artist may be all to the good. And that's probably not what we want to see if we're calculating the trajectory of an airplane when it needs to land on a tarmac. We don't want to be radically original at that particular moment or during brain surgery, for example. That's when we don't want to be radically exploratory. Mm-hmm. I don't think or this this flight will not end well. Yeah. Well, I, I do really find it inspiring how you take a look at how those neurological differences whether it's mental illness, disorder, whatever it is, can actually be an enabler of genius. And I I think that's, I would find that encouraging if that was something that someone close to me was was dealing with, like you mentioned the autism. Uh, I I would find that encouraging that it's, it's not all a, a negative. There's there's positives that come with that too. Yeah, it's probably true of everything, everything yeah. in life. Yeah. yeah. Tell us how you differentiate between prodigies and geniuses. Well, that's what I got onto with with Mozart, and I started following all this and following prodigies and thinking about my own kids and thinking about grandchildren and going through a music conservatory where there seemed to be so many prodigies around and watching these people and then continuing to watch them. Now, uh, geez, how many years have I been out of the Eastman School of Music? Well, longer than I would care to admit, but <laughs> let's say, let's say 50 years. And all I can say is 
be careful what you wish for. If you think your child is a prodigy, there are liabilities there because you and also the child ultimately, in my opinion, what I've been able to read by other psychologists on this, or I'm not a psychologist, but others who are psychologists, um, this again is not going to end well. That individual will be disappointed themselves and maybe they're disappointed uh, because they sense the disappointment in, in the parents. That, and that's if a child is considered a prodigy? If they're considered a prodigy and great things are, oh, this is a precursor to genius. It just doesn't happen. I mean, this, it's, you're more likely to change the world, uh, find out somebody reaches their stride at age 40 or something like that. And we're kind of, again, a plotter early on in life. There's no direct route between prodigy to geniuses. Almost overwhelming majority of geniuses were never prodigy and the super, uh, super, super, super majority of prodigies never become geniuses. And the problem with raising what you think is a prodigy is that you you typecast them at a very early age. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put them in one environment. You foreground all of the activities in all the lessons, all the competitions in that one area. And then it turns out maybe 20 years later, that's not their, not their yeah. strength at all. So most geniuses never were prodigies, and most prodigies never become geniuses. What do you see as the difference between prodigy and genius? Well, according to my definition of genius is that the prodigies are extremely good at replicating the adult world at an early age. But what they do not do is transform the adult world. They are not creative. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are mimics. They are imitators. They can mimic an extraordinary early age and extraordinarily well, and we're all impressed. So prodigy, that's more characterized by being able to mimic or imitate something at an incredibly high level, often at Mm -hmm. a very young age. And genius is more original, creative thinking that transforms their field. Exactly. And can come at any age in Mm. life. And you said it's more likely to come at an older age, the plotters. Uh, Statistically, it's field dependent. For example, writing uh, transformative novels is more of an older person's game. Painting Mm -hmm. may be an older person's game. If you're in science and math, that tends to come earlier. Newton in his very early 20s, Einstein in his mid-20s. So that uh, when uh, the transformative insights come, it to some degree is discipline dependent. Mm -hmm. Sure. Talk to us about some of the patterns that you notice of when these light bulb moments tend to come to geniuses. Well, I've been sort of surprised. I always had this notion, okay, if you want to have a great insight, you just got to think about it. Just concentrate, concentrate, concentrate on solving the problem. Turns out that's the exact opposite of what you should be you should be doing. What you should do is not think about the problem. What you should do is cram a lot of information in there as if you were thinking about that problem and then let it incubate sort of mm-hmm. Think about it almost subconsciously, subconsciously because barriers between uh, disciplines, barriers between categories of information may be taken down in moments of relaxation or moments uh, in which the mind is very relaxed. And you can induce some of those moments of relaxation, for example, by walking or jogging or going to the seashore and just watching the waves. Or you can take advantage of moments when your subconscious, the barriers are down 
problems, such as when you first wake up after rapid eye movement sleep, and there have been a lot of tests on this. People are much more likely to solve maze puzzle when they first wake up mm-hmm. um, about four o'clock in the morning. So you can you can capitalize on that. You can you can uh, take advantage of that. Maybe the smartest thing to do in the morning when you wake up is not get up and be productive and concentrate, but just to take 20 minutes sitting there thinking, but thinking with pen and paper next to your bed on the bed stand or keeping it in your bathroom there where you have a shower because that acetylcholine that's coursing through your brain at that point, it takes about 20 minutes for that to seep out. And, and that's when the connections are still being made. And that's why I can totally that. relate to that. I mean, I, yeah. I'm a night owl, so I don't really like getting up in the morning anyways, but <laughs> When that when when I wake up in the morning, if I can just sort of lie there for twenty minutes, mm-hmm. th- that is sometimes when I have some creative ideas, so I can relate to that. And also, I think about just mowing the lawn or going, like you said, mm-hmm. going for a walk. I thought it was interesting in your book you mentioned a lot of people get their bright ideas when they're riding, so like riding in a boat or a train or a yeah. bus, and there's that rocking motion. And then, of course, Einstein is famous for playing his violin when he stumped with something and just needed to relax and kind of get his mind in that that state of high function or problem solving. I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, scientists would call it primary source thinking. Interesting enough, it's more primal than the secondary thinking, which is concentrative thinking, where you have to come up sequentially with the with the right answer. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories about this, staying on the subject. Not only did Einstein love to play the violin, he used to, he loved to go sailing, and he had a sailboat. Mm-hmm. And he, after he had one in Europe and Berlin area, and he had one in the United States when he moved to Princeton, and then would go up in the summers and. We'll, on Long Island Sound, and then out he would go sailing, but he would never trim the sails. In other words, he would go out there and just let the boat take him wherever he wanted to go, uh-huh. and he would sit there with pen and paper and 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 take write notes. But he'd be uh-huh. out there, out there just rocking, and it was very relaxing, just literally going with the flow. Interesting. Well, there's so much more fascinating information in the book. If listeners are finding this topic interesting, definitely check out the book. And it also includes really interesting information on the relationship of habit and routine to genius and also the benefits of cross training and the arts and sciences. And there's also some encouragement for those of you who may be stuck living with a genius, whether it's your boss or a significant (laughs) other or a child, I can imagine parenting a genius would not be easy. (laughs) Well, tell us real quick about your free online course that you were telling me about when we first got on the phone. That sounded fascinating. And and the other course that you're working on right now that's not quite available yet. Tell us about those. Well, I know know your uh, listening audience is very much interested in music. And it occurred to me, well, there's nothing more basic in in, in music available uh, free and on the internet all around the world 24-7 today than these free Coursera courses. And I platformed one it was one of the first that Yale had. It's 24 hours, a very carefully thought through presentation of how one comes to be exposed to the elements of classical music and what to listen for as you are embracing classical music, because I think that gives the listening experience so much more richness. You can really pay attention to and, and really not just double your listening pleasure, but maybe multiply it by tenfold. So that's called Introduction to Classical Music, all free 
comes with a free Spotify playlist there, and you can listen to all the music. Introduction to classical music. I'll, I'll definitely look that up and include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. And tell us about the the other free course that you're working on right now. Well, the that's to take the because I do te- teach the uh, course in genius and about the nature of genius. It's not it's not teaching you how to be a genius so much as to to understand the issues about the term and the historical development of the term and prejudices against women and prejudice against the people of color and and how it is that we form values generally or or what our um, touchstones are in life. Um, so that's going to come up by the end of the year in an online course with Coursera. I'm not sure the title of it yet, but that will also be free. So if listeners are interested, uh, check that out, Coursera, toward the end of the year. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this information. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do you have a song or a story that you can share with us today? Yeah, well, um, uh, it was interesting, Mindy, as I, I'm still looking up at the screen here because we got some um, computer connection here and I see Mindy Peterson. So then And then I listened to you. I said, that accent. I mean, being in being in music, that has to be somewhere between Upper Peninsula, Michigan, or Michigan somewhere. It's this Midwestern accent. I can't. I'm pretty Midwestern. Yeah. <laughs> no uh, denying up, that. Up, up up to the Northwest, and and then I remember that my uh, ancestors on my mother's side, they were farming people from northeastern Iowa, right on the uh, border with Minnesota, the, the thriving metropolis of Blue Earth. I, it may be <laughs> one of these ghost towns out there now. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it's it's south of Rochester, Minnesota. And that's where they came from. And one of the time, and I would we would go out there almost every summer to revisit mm-hmm. because that's my mother wanted to visit her parents and all. And we go out there and there's this farm family. And in this area, there were people from Finland and people from Norway and people from Germany and people from Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic. So these sort of Northern European types that all always had a very strong interest in music. So one day, as a family outing, we were going to go to Spillville, Iowa. That was a center for Czechs. And why would we go there? Because that's where Anton Dvorak, Dvorak, they call him out there in Iowa now, but Dvorak is closer to the real pronunciation. He came out there in 1893, and he finished off the New World Symphony, which has always been one of my favorite pieces of music, particularly the slow movement there. So then I, every time I listen to that piece, I think of that trip to Spillville, Iowa. And, and what is music? I mean, music is not just processing uh, sounds in real time. Music is really an invitation. It's in an invitation to enter into your psyche and particularly your memories and the emotions associated with it. How you feel about music is driven by, is a creation of the sum total of your life experiences and particularly your, your memories here. So when I hear this music, I think of those farm fields and I think of those kind, kind people out there in the Midwest and now the emotional associations that come through this particular piece of music.
And that is Craig playing a piano reduction of the opening of the second movement of Dvorak's Symphony No. 9, which was written in Spillville, Iowa in 1893. Thanks so much to Dr. Wright for joining us today. There are links in the show notes to his books, including The Hidden Habits of Genius, and also links to his website and his free course, Intro to Classical Music on Coursera. Before I let you go, I want to let you know about another podcast that I listen to and you may enjoy. Cadence is hosted by neuroscientist and soprano Indre Viscontis, who was a guest on episode 35, and it's a podcast that asks what music can tell us about the mind. The first season is a 10-episode journey answering the fundamental questions of how our brains turn sound waves into music, what it takes to keep a beat, and how musical training shapes our brains. The second season focuses on music as medicine with stories of how music rewires the brains of patients with traumatic injuries, improves kids' recovery from cancer, and helps immigrant women learn English. Now in season three, Cadence explores how music influences us from politics to pets, in ads, and in prisons. Cadence, what music tells us about the mind. Find it wherever you get your audio or on their website, theensembleproject.com slash cadence. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.